This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Tyrone here. You've locked yourself into another episode of Science with Dr. Carl, where we're talking all the hot science questions on your lips, like bags, under our eyes. Why are they a thing? Especially when we're tired. We talk about fingernails and why they grow so fast and sneezing, especially when it's five times in a row. Plenty to get through on this episode. So how about we jump into it? The one, the only, Dr. Carl, how you doing? Um, confused because you did say I'm the one and only. The one and only. But. But. Several years ago, I went into Imperial College in London and had a cup of tea with Dr. Carl Krushelnitsky, who's an astrophysicist. Another Dr. Carl. There's two of them. So when you say the one and only, um, metaphorically you're correct, but strictly speaking you're not. It doesn't work. Yeah. Now that we've got that difficult part of our conversation out of the way. <laughs> Hopefully the most and only difficult part yeah, about that's this right. next we'll, hour. We shall now flow like water from the sky. We shall be as close as tongue and lips as the Chinese say. Yes. Yes. Poetic. Very poetic. How has your week been, Dr. Carl? Uh, pretty good, except last night I only had four hours sleep because I spent three hours writing a story about ivermectin. So I'm slightly deluded and sleep deprived and I hope to perform well today. Mm, well, uh, you always do and you never fail to perform well. So Wow. <laughs> I'm liking this confidence. Okay, to the audience. <laughs> to the audience. Okay, let's rip this band-aid yep. off. Let's go to Geneve in Nam, Melbourne. Geneve, you have a question about sweaty armpits for Dr. Carl. Yeah, hey. Dr. Carl. Dr. Um, Geneve, I, welcome. I love your segments and I've been to several of your talks, so I just want to oh, shout out. You're my new best friend forever. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, so I just wanted to know, sometimes I, well, actually my husband told me this, but anyway, sometimes I sweat and it doesn't smell bad at all, but sometimes I sweat and it smells really bad and I can't really understand what caused, um, yeah, why is the sweat sometimes smelly and not? The sweat itself is a liquid put out by various glands, typically in the armpits we're talking, and the um, sweat itself is odourless. So what happens is you have a sweat gland and flowing into it is blood and the blood is 55% salt water and a few chemicals and 45% cells. Flowing out the other side is slightly less water and slightly fewer of the chemicals. So they've been sucked out of the blood and then squirted out through your armpit and they are odourless and then they get eaten by bacteria. Now, let me introduce you to the concept of biome, which is the bunch of bacteria that live on your body. You have, uh, on average, 37 trillion cells that were given to you by your parents when they loved each other very much in a special way your age plus nine months ago. But on top of those 37 trillion cells from your parents, you've got 40 trillion bacterial cells. Now, they're very small, kind of like the ratio of an Olympic swimming pool to a, a car, so they don't weigh as much as you do. There's more, but they, don't, they weigh a lot less. There's about a kilogram or so. And most of them are in your gut, but there's some in your armpits, and they change, and this is the thing. So overnight, your bacterial population completely changes. There's probably, say, a thousand different families. And because they're being fed with less sweat, sorry, less saliva in your mouth, by the time you wake up in the morning, oh, sorry, by the time I wake up in the morning, I have bum breath. You, of course, smell like roses. And in the <laughs> same way, the um, biome, the population of bacteria on your skin and in your armpits can change. 
due to many factors. Were you happy? Were you sad? Were you anxious? Did you do a bit of exercise? And so depending on what sort of bacteria are there, they then eat the sweat and they give either stinky or non-stinky chemicals. Does that help, Dr. Geneve? So it isn't about toxins leaving your body. It's literally about the bacteria sitting on your skin. Ah, the toxins leaving your body is a wellness concept and we have a few <laughs> organs um, and I'm a bit sceptical about wellness in general but I do like the idea of meditation and we have a few organs that specialise in that, especially the liver. The sweat glands, mate, they say that they're for removing toxins, they, but the people who actually study it, the physiologists say, nah, just hippie bulldust. That is a great answer. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Geneve. I'm going to head to Michael, Dr. Michael in the Blue Mountains. Got a question about the link between gum disease and heart disease. Dr. Michael, welcome. Um, yeah, it was just a simple question um, between those two things. I was just wondering, is the gums and the heart linked in some way or why is the gum disease and heart disease linked? Is it is like an indicator or something like that? Um let me introduce you to the concept of the mask area. Are you ready for this, Dr. Tyrone? Mm. Imagine that you, on one side of your mouth, on one side of your face, you draw a line from the corner of one mouth to the corner of one eye, and on the other side, you draw a line from the corner of your mouth to the corner of the other eye. That area is called the mask area, and you should never squeeze blackheads in that area or you'd kill yourself. What, really? Yes. Um, and the reason is that in most cases, the blood supply goes into the veins and into the general circulation and then eventually gets around into the brain. Uh, in this case, it goes straight to the brain. Is that the surface area between... So when we're drawing the lines, yeah, is so it drawing the surface the line area between the nose and the lines? Yeah, yeah. So it's everything from the corner of one ma uh, one corner of your mouth and the eye all the way across your, your nose to the other side. You should not pick blackheads on your nose because if you're lucky, most of the time, overwhelmingly, most of the time, it'll all squeeze outwards. You won't damage the blood vessel and none of the bacteria in the blackhead will get into the blood vessel. But every now and then, and this is what medical people see in hospitals, somebody has done it and they come in with this raging infection in their brain and they've actually released some bacteria into the veins, into the brain, and the gums are kind of fitting into that. Oh, right. So, so they will, if you've got gum disease, you can release bacteria into the general circulation and in this case, they can then clog up in your heart. Go ah. into Wikipedia and look up bacterial endocarditis, bacterial okay. endocarditis. And interestingly, one of the um, signs that you can pick up on a patient is you look at their fingernails and if you see what they call splinter hemorrhages, there's nice pictures of it, you're thinking, geez, this guy's a bit crook and he or she has splinter hemorrhages. I'm thinking bacterial endocarditis, medical emergency, let's get them into ICU yesterday. So that's, anyway, that's, that's, that, that is thought to be the link, that the bacteria are released into your general bloodstream from your gums and then can end up in your heart and then cause an infection there. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Thank you, Dr. Michael. Thank you, Dr. Michael. We have a very special question. I am very excited for this one because it is a question about ice cream. Dr. Ali from Mackay. How are you doing, Dr. Ali? Good, thank you. Welcome, Dr. Ali. Um, hello. My question today was um, how come 
when you feel sad, eating ice cream makes you feel better. Um, that's true and it's complicated and we'll touch on Elvis Presley. So <laughs> firstly, eating food is necessary and you have been wired up in your genes, in your DNA before you were born to enjoy food. And so you get pleasure from it. It's actually a major sort of pleasure. And if you happen to be the sort of person who can go with food, go without it, don't care, you end up sort of wasting away and not eating and you could waste away and, and, and die. But, but So we have this strong desire, it's wired into us, and in some people they get more pleasure from it than other people and so they can end up eating more than they need and put on a bit of weight. But also there's another pathway as well. With regard to eating, it's something that you can have control of all by yourself. So if you go back to Elvis Presley, uh, have you heard of Elvis Presley? Yes. Okay. So he he had just the most amazing voice. He, absolutely fasc, fascinating. When he died in 1977 at the age of 42, he weighed 159 kilograms. That is the weight of two regular people for his height. And he was eating um, enough food for two people at each meal. Um, and the situation was that he wasn't in control of his life and he had a manager who in fact was an illegal alien, I think, into the United States and therefore didn't have a passport and that's why Elvis Presley, who always wanted to go overseas, would never go on tours because his manager wouldn't organise overseas tours. And then he ended up getting caught in contracts and things that he didn't want to do and the only way he had control over his life was just to eat and so he ate his way to death. Now, that's the very dark side. Ice cream is not like that. Ice cream, look, a sm- think about ice cream as discretionary food. The ancient Romans would have ice cream 2,000 years ago. They would truck ice or, or get it shifted from the hills in winter and then bring it into Rome and then dig a big pit in the ground and put like a block of ice like two metres by two metres in there and it would keep things cold and they would have ice cream 2,000 years ago. So there's a special thing about ice cream because you've got that mixture of creamy flavour plus sweetness plus cold all in one. It's just the most gorgeous thing. So it is good to like ice cream. Have I answered your question? What was the question again? <laughs> um, what, how come when you're sad, does ice cream make you feel better? Okay, they do have the phrase comfort eating. and <laughs> So it's just a case of you're sad and if you can't talk to your family or your friends, at least you've got the freezer. <laughs> and you can have a little, little bit of ice cream, which, which, but really you're better off with family and friends and ask them to share some ice cream with you rather than having it by yourself. <laughs> and think of it as discretionary food because otherwise I get in trouble with Claire Collins, our dietitian person from Newcastle because uh, she says I've got to call it discretionary food otherwise I'll get in trouble. So a little <laughs> bit is good but not too much. A little bit of ice cream, not too much ice cream, but hey – it makes you feel better when you're sad. Sharing is caring with family, my friend. Right on. Dr. Ali, thank you for your question. Dr. We're going to head to the other side of the spectrum now. Bit of a bit of a change in scene. Dr. Pete here with a question about the moon. Dr. Pete. Dr. Pete, welcome. Hello, Dr. Carl, Dr. Tyrone. How are you? Peachy Keen. Good, good. Excellent, excellent. And I've just felt happy just hearing about ice cream. So, uh, <laughs> oh. yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Many great Love effects. Yeah. Um, look, my question is, um been on my mind for a while. Um, the, the flag that the Americans put on the moon back in 1969 
being in space, would it be preserved or would it have faded by now? Um, there are factors going in both directions, depending on what the flag was made of. So on one hand, there's no oxygen and our atmosphere is made of 20% oxygen and oxygen is quite a reactive chemical. So oxygen by itself will react more with some materials rather than others. And I don't know whether oxygen by itself would react with the flag. I'm imagining that it was a polyester flag rather than a cotton flag, but I don't know. Either way, I don't think oxygen would have a major effect. The major effect would be just the raw blast of energy from the sun. So when the sun is directly overhead, that flag is getting 1,361 watts of power. It's about a square metre in size. And that power is roughly 45% light and 55% heat. And, and, and in that, sorry, I take back some of that, about 10% of it is ultraviolet. The amount of ultraviolet that gets down to the ground here on Earth is, you know, a percent because of the atmosphere, but up there it's about 10%. And I'm guessing if there is somebody who is a clothing technologist, please ring in. What's the magic number, Dr. Tyro? 0439757555. But but I'm reckoning that the onslaught of raw ultraviolet plus the radiation would be fading Mm. it very rapidly. That's just a guess. But we'll find out in a few years when we get back there. Hopefully. Thank you, Dr. Pete. Thank you, Dr. Pete. Question about the flag on the moon. Very interesting one, actually. And by the way, we did go to the moon. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Got to put that out there. We did go to the the moon. The the real truth, seeing how the microphone is is off, is that we never got to the moon, but we actually shot the fake movies on the moon to make it look realistic. (laughs) It works just as well, really. Uh, We're going to Dr. Scott in the Gold Coast right now with a question about fingernails. (gasps) Dr. Dr. Scott. G'day, doctors. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Welcome. Uh, Dr. Carl, I've been asked to be brief, but uh, I I briefly met you about uh, 10 plus years ago. I was on a uh, a Qantas flight to Singapore and you um, were sitting on the upper deck and you uh, excused yourself and came and asked to look through the window. There was some some kind of uh, astral phenomenon happening uh, once in a lifetime thing uh, that you wanted to look out the window and see. I remember that because the thing I loved most about the 747 is, you know, the little bubble on the top. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and so you burn up your frequent flyer points and for 128,000 points, you can fly business class to Europe. So what you do is you join a credit card and you stay there for one day, one year minus one day, and you get 100,000 points and providing you leave before one year, you don't get charged and you get 100,000 points. You do that a couple of times, you get enough points to fly all the way to Europe in business class on points. And then you're in the bubble, which is, is just lovely. And then we were looking out the window and there was an eclipse of the moon. The moon was travelling into the shadow of the earth. Oh, my God. It was During amazing. a flight. Oh, yeah. We were so lucky. Okay. Look, thank you, Dr. Scott. We've got that lovely memory out of the way. And your comment or question? Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's on fingernails. Now, I, my uh, fingernails tend to grow really quickly. I was just um, wondering why, uh, you know, some people's fingernails might grow quicker than others. And they particularly seem to grow after, like, if I've had sort of three or four days away where I've uh, you know, been consuming uh, a bit of alcohol, they set, tend to grow even quicker. I was just wondering, um, are they, uh, is that uh, a correlation and why do, uh, is it a sign of good health or is it something different? Ah, um, here we have to go entirely off beam and go to the wise words of the Mythbusters, which are the difference between science and screwing around is that you write it down. So 
the concept that fingernails can accelerate and slow down, I haven't come across, but it could be true. And here is your chance to do some great science. And if you do it, you can win a Triple J Fun Pack, which I think is some CDs you got in your bottom drawer of your desk or <laughs> some sort of rubbish. Uh, we will, we'll think of we'll something. We'll scrap it up. Okay, so what you've got to do <laughs> is on your um, fingernails, get a, uh, a triangular file. So you can have files that are rat tail ones, they're round, and you can have flat, and you can have flat on one side and curved on the other. Get a small triangular file, and then on each fingernail at the line where the white and the pink meet, you know, right up in near, near the base there, scratch a line, just a very gentle one, with the file. And then take photographs of each fingernail with a ruler in the photograph every single day. That's 10 photographs a day at the same time of day for the next two months and then do the measurements and then write it down and then get back to us and, and tell us if – because you use the word it seems to grow faster and it could well be that you might not be thinking as clearly after doing a bit of drinking – so, are you ready to do that experiment for us there, Dr. Scott, with a proviso you might get some crappy CDs from 1952 or something? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Sounds like I've got some homework. You've got, you've, you've got some homework. Got some and I'm, homework. Ex- I'm expecting at least 80% from you, Dr. Scott. I, come on, year nine. I can wait here just as long as you can. Dr. Carl, when we started the hour, you Mm. were talking a bit about how you were up all last night doing some riding. Yes. And Dr. Lynn here on Gadigal Country has a question just about that. Dr. Lynn, welcome. Dr. Lynn, welcome. Hi, Doc. Good morning, doctors. Yeah, hi, Dr. Carl. I was hearing you were talking about ivermectin and I've had discussions with a bunch of friends about how it can be used to treat severe COVID symptoms. And I was wondering, is that really the case? And what's the real story about ivermectin? Uh, The summary has just come in over the last few months that ivermectin does not work. But even as recently as October last year, there had not been enough good studies to show whether ivermectin did work or did not work. The bottom line was there had not been enough good studies and we just did not have proof one way or the other. And it was only at the beginning of this year, two years after the pandemic began, that we finally had information about it. A bit of background to ivermectin. Ivermectin, um, it comes from a bacterium in only one place in the whole world. Uh, the soil in a golf in the woods next to a golf course on the southeast coast of the island of Honshu in Japan. And in 1970, scientists were looking for drugs to fight bacteria, drugs to fight parasites, which affect hundreds of millions of people in the poor countries near the tropics. And they were looking for these drugs. And somebody scooped with a little teaspoon some soil, and that turned out to make eight different chemicals. The bacteria made eight different chemicals which would um, fight parasites, and they modified them and joined two of them them together to make ivermectin and that's the only place in the whole universe where that bacterium lives we've looked everywhere else a golf we, course a golf course oh, in the woods in next the to a woods. golf course okay <laughs> and so in the early days it was terrible so um the pandemic hit at the beginning of 2020 by may 2020 there was so many dead bodies in new york city that they were stacking them in their thousands in refrigerator trucks. And even a year later, in May 21, 
there was still nearly a thousand bodies in refrigerator trucks that they hadn't been able to process on the um, coastline of Brooklyn in New York City. So everybody was desperate for something. We didn't have a vaccine until the beginning of 21 and we had no drugs. And in Australia at the beginning of 20, so that's in the first four months of the pandemic, there was a study that showed that if you got some cells. Okay, they weren't human cells, they were monkey cells. And you put them in a test tube, not a human, and you load them up with a parasite and then hit them with absolutely astronomical doses of ivermectin. Doses that is literally impossible to achieve in a human, it would kill the uh, virus. Um, And very quickly they said, look, this is only in a test tube because if every scientist got a Nobel Prize for something, for curing some disease in a test tube, um, there'd be Nobel Prizes coming out of the door. But to make it work in a human is a whole different thing. So then they started trying it on humans and firstly they were in such a rush. So they've got all these people just dying everywhere. 80 million people have died so far. And they were trying desperately anything and they tried ivermectin and the results were sort of maybe yes, maybe no. In the early days there were a bunch of studies that were very badly done and they didn't even go through the proper review process and they just shoved them out saying, look, this is what we got and the newspapers picked them up and they were later shown that they didn't have a big enough sample size. There were a series of people who were con artists Look up Surgi Sphere, S-U-R-G-I-S-P-H-E-R-E. They faked data. And there was an Egyptian study where they just faked the data. And there are a whole bunch of studies where people were trying to get famous or sell ivermectin where they faked the data. And these then made it into being, you know, in, in, into the sort of the newspapers. But the scientists were doing the hard testing. They threw away these studies because they were fake studies. And all they had was studies that said maybe it worked and maybe it didn't. And so the summary just came through earlier this year year when we finally did the big study. So we had a whole, many thousands of people and they're all in different stages of COVID and they're matched one for one. And some of them get ivermectin and some of them don't. And ivermectin doesn't make any difference. But the trouble with taking ivermectin is that it might stop you from a treatment that does work. Mm. Um, And so we've had, uh, so basically the bottom line is just in the last few months, we have found for sure that ivermectin does not cause any improvement and it stops you. And then, I mean, the side effects are usually fairly low, but if you take the big doses, you can have bad ones. Is that kind of answering your question, Dr. Lynn? Yes, it is, Dr. Carl. Thanks. I can go back and have a chat to my friends now. Okay. The, if you go looking on ABC, type in your search engine, ABC Dr. Carl Ivermectin. I did one story last week and I'm doing I'm recording another one today and it'll be all in there. There you go. Dr. Lynn, thank you. Oh, and, and TikTok too. For your, of course. Of course. <laughs> I have to do TikTok. <laughs> Can't forget TikTok. Oh, God. I mean, that's your highest scientific <laughs> literature. Who cares about the front page of the New York Times above the fold or nature or science? TikTok is where it's at. That's I- exactly where it's at. It's exactly where you're at as well, Dr. Carl. We're going to Dr. Jai in Newcastle now who has a question about solar energy. Dr. Jai, welcome. Dr. Jai, welcome. Hi, guys. How is everyone? Very Thanks. pretty keen. Thank you. I was wondering, could the sun be exhausted if Earth and similar planets drew massive amounts of solar energy? Ah, that's a really good um, way of thinking about it. Um, And it turns out that it works the other way. So the sun, every second, burns 620 million tonnes of hydrogen. 
Wow. That's not 620. That's 620 million tonnes every second and turns it into 616 million tonnes of helium and four – you've got a shortfall of four million tonnes every second. Three million tonnes of of mass gets turned into pure energy, which then gets blasted out. Um, As I said earlier, a mixture of infrared and ultraviolet and visible light. Um, And then one million tonnes a second gets thrown out as a solar wind. So it's not where the Earth is drawing more power from the sun, but it's the other way around. The sun's just blasting it out and we happen to be in a way. And when the amount of helium in the sun increases by about another one-tenth of a percent, which will happen in about five billion years, the sun will then come to the end of its life as we know it and then will expand and get bigger and swallow up the planet Mercury and probably Venus and maybe Earth and possibly even Mars and then shrink down. It'll turn into a red giant and then it will shrink down to 1% of its current size, roughly the size of the Earth um, with a surface temperature of about 10,000 degrees. It'll be called a white dwarf and it'll stay like that forever. Um, That was a bit of a depressing end, wasn't it? Uh, sorry, <laughs> is that kind of answering your question there, Dr. Jai? Yeah, it sure did. Thank you, guys. The sun grows and shrinks. It's awesome. Yeah, I reckon their life, but Professor Grant Lewis doesn't agree with him, but that's another story. Let's go. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Jai, for your question. We're on Science Hour with Dr. Carl here on Triple J. And we're going to head to Dr. and now, forgive me if I get this wrong, Roizen, who has got a question about bags under our eyes. Yeah, c- can you give us a proper pronunciation, please? It's Rasheen. Rasheen. Oh, I butchered yeah, that. Okay. Oh, oh, goodness, I'm sorry. No worries. No, it's okay. Dr. Rasheen, welcome. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering, why do we get bags or dark, dark circles under our eyes when we're tired? Um, I've asked a few of my dermatologist mates and I've read some of the papers they've given me and this is about six years ago so there might be some better information but the way it works is like this. When we were, we spent, we've spent most of our evolutionary life being kind of more horizontally you know, around on all fours, and only recently have we gone vertical. Now, one of the problems is that in your face and your bone structure, there are things called sinuses, and a sinus is basically a cavity with only one hole. You know, stuff goes in, it has to come out the same way, kind of like your lungs. Like with your mouth and your, and, and your gut, it comes in one end and goes out the other, but with your lungs, it comes out and in with the same hole. With the sinuses, when you're on all fours the drain point is at the lowest point and all the crud in there just drains out. But when we're standing up, which only happened over the last two million years, then the drain point is not at the lowest point. It's as bad as that British sports car, the MG, where in one case the drain point for the front boot for the boot is, I think, 10 centimetres above the lowest point in the boot. Why would they not have the drain point at the lowest point? So, okay, in the same way, when you're on all when, – when you're lying down – the lymphatics apparently, this is what the dermatologist told me, I haven't been able to find it in the literature, I need to be updated. When you're lying down, the draining of your lymphatics is into your blood vessels. But when you're standing up, it tends, stuff tends to stay there. And th- that's the best I got for you. And Dr. Rasheen, you've convinced me to do some more homework because I really want to know the proper answer. Oh, no, thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. I mean, I did give somebody else homework. It's time for me to do some homework. (laughs) Well, it's a very interesting question, Dr. Rasheen. Thank you. We're going to head to Adelaide now. Dr. Tom, you've got a burning question. Dr. Tom, welcome. I I do. Thank you. How is everyone? Good, good. Rasheen, yeah. 
Lovely. I was wondering, Dr. Carl, this is more maybe of an opinion question, but where do you think um, the human evolution is going and what might be the next big step in the human evolution if there is one that will be measurable? Oh, it'll be controlled by us. Controlled? Yeah, yeah. So um, think about the disease cystic fibrosis. Now, that has no good effects. It's only got bad effects. If you are a Chinese-type person on the Pacific coast of China, then your chances of having it are close to zero. But if you're a European white person, your chances of carrying the gene, carrying the gene, are 1 in 20. Averaged out across the whole world, it's about 1 in 70. So part of our evolution is we're going to snip, we're going to alter our own DNA while we're alive. And go to Wikipedia and look up the thing called CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. Two female scientists won the Nobel Prize for it two years ago. And it allows gene editing. The gene editing is not, it's a fairly blunt tool. It's not as good as it should be, of course, but it's much better than what was in the past. And there will be better ones in the future. So we can, so for example, consider elastin. Now, elastin is a chemical, it's a protein that makes your skin elastic and the universe played a dirty trick on us. When you're born, you've got your entire lifetime supply of elastin and that's it. Then it has to stretch out from your tiny little body as a baby to your fully blown body as an adult and then you're not making any more. It then has to survive for the rest of your life and it gets degraded by reactive oxidative species as a result of normal metabolism and sunlight and everything else. Mate, I would like to modify our skin, our DNA, so that we actually make elastin during life and improve our health and our life expectancy. And consider the liver. The liver, you can remove one third of it and it grows back again. And bone is the prince of tissues. It'll regrow beautifully and other tissues don't. Like you cut your skin, you're left with a scar. But you can, wouldn't it be good if we could fix that so we could basically head for immortality and change ourselves to be shorter or taller? So if you lived in Australia, you'd think, oh my God, I'm in Australia. I am sick of sunblock. I'm going to turn up, I'm going to order my DNA while I'm alive so that I have jet black skin. So I vastly reduce the amount of sunblock I have to put on. <laughs> because we all have the same number of cells that make our skin dark per square millimetre. But the volume knob is turned up in darker skinned people. The blackest ones I know are the Booker people of New Guinea. They're so shiny, they're black. And then the other extreme is people who live up near in, inside the Arctic Circle and they're as pale. But they've all got the same number of cells. The volume knob is just turned up. And all we've got to do is find it and turn it up. Mm. So we will modify our own DNA. So we'll, we'll be heading for longer life expectancy with a healthy body. And we are on Science with Dr. Carl, Tom from Adelaide. Thank you for your question. Dr. Nick in Newcastle has a very interesting question about sneezing. Dr. Nick, welcome. Hi, doctors. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks, Pleasure, Um Yeah, I'm just wondering. I Every time I sneeze, I sneeze five times. It's never four. It's never six. It's always five extreme sneezes. And I don't know whether it's something subconsciously because I've been doing it for a while that I'm you know, have to hit five or I'm just not unsure what it is. Is this common? Um, It's related to the fact that sneezing is an absolutely essential reflex. You've got to have sneezing because if you let dirt get into your lungs, mate, in general, it's not going to come out. So you have, we have evolved over a period of time, this sneezing reflex. And so when the little hairs 
on the airways get irritated with dirt, they move, they then send electrical signal here, it all gets integrated, goes to the brain and it says, aha, time to have a sneeze. It then builds up, it closes your vocal cords or your glottis, the pressure builds up inside your lungs and it builds up and then suddenly it releases it and a fair amount of the crud goes flying out and so you shouldn't sneeze in another person or your hand or something like that. But So it is essential and you are lucky that you have got yourself a, a, a you know, genetics has given you a good sneezing reflex. Um, in, in later life you'll have, probably have cleaner lungs than people who do not have such a good sneezing reflex. The tr- downside is that it's none of this sort of sneeze, that's it, it's sort of sneeze, oh my God, there's four more to go. By the last one, everybody's <laughs> going to be looking at me, I'm so embarrassed, I can't hide it. Oh, by the way, if you don't try to hold in a sneeze because you can force stuff up into your sinuses. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've learned that lesson quite um, quite harshly, actually. I oh. kind of blew my eyeball out of it. Oh, really? <laughs> well, well hang on, hang on, tell us well, the story. Well, because I, I, um, I had a broken cheekbone from football and a broken eye socket and I, I, I kind of held in a sneeze once and then it kind of not, nearly, not dislodged my eyeball, but it definitely kind of popped a bit and oh, I had God. to kind of push it back in. Oh, God, because you've got a rise in pressure, not just in your lungs, yep. but from the whole cavity that goes from the, bottom, from the top of your legs through your gut, through your lungs and into your brain and up to the top of the skull. That whole pressure experiences that pressure wave. And you had both yeah. a broken cheekbone and a bro- the broken bones oh, in I the orbit. It. I'm so glad yeah. it didn't get so, bad. Wow. I know, but, but anyway, thank you so much for that. Um, I'll yeah. keep on sneezing heavily. And enjoying it, knowing that you have a, you'll have cleaner lungs at the end of your life. <laughs> Five times each round. Thank you, Dr. Nick from Newcastle. We're going to Dr. Bill now who has a question about uploading individual consciousnesses. Dr. Bill, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks, guys. How are you? Good, um, good. Pretty keen? Yeah, hey, um, I just had a question, Dr. Carl. So recently I was part of a team that went out to tender the Square Kilometre Array that's being built in Western Australia. It's going to be the largest deep space radio telescope ever built. Yeah, a square kilometre of collecting area and it's been put in a part of Australia which is very radio quiet, so there's no radio transmitters, no mobile phones, and you were part of that team. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to be out there. But at, at the time I was out there, I was watching a show called Altered Carbon where they talk about in the future, humans being able to download their individual consciousness and sort of becoming immortal by just putting that into new bodies as they go. Ah, that's and, starring that wonderful Japanese actor, Sen Somebody, who was the uh, nephew of the older uh, guy. Okay, yeah, go on, go on, go on, yep. Anyway, I was just thinking, with, with that in mind, is it possible the reason we haven't found signs of life in the universe to date is because that maybe advanced civilizations, rather than expanding out into the universe, have created their own digital universe that they've uploaded their individual consciousnesses to, kind of like a metaverse, and they're living inside that now? Uh, that, that is option one, that they are living a rich and full and satisfying life inside their own digital universe. Um, option two is that they've turned, according to um, somebody who wrote, uh, oh God, he was in Santa Fe Institute, Disturbed the Universe, uh, look up that book, uh, that we have turned themselves into clouds of iron vapour with consciousness and we're not really ready, we don't really think about clouds of iron vapour as having consciousness. Um, So that's a second option where we're not available for talking with the rest of the universe. Um, Yeah, and and the third one is that the matrix could be real. 
Um, yeah, look, look, all of those are possibilities and we don't really know where we'll find life. Like we're, we're looking for life by sending out radio waves but we didn't use radio waves 100 years ago and we might not use them in 200 years. It could be like a temporary thing. Oh, you're using radio waves. Oh, no, one, nobody saw you. probably sent me a letter. You sent me information by putting it in a piece of paper and then putting a sticky bit of stamp on it that you bought for 20 cents and putting it in a letterbox. Have I got a letterbox at my place? <laughs> Do you still get mail, Dr. Tyrone? Do you get... Um, yeah, but I don't have a mailbox. Now that I think of it, it just got, comes under the door. Yeah, and do you have uh, uh, an email? You've got an email account for sure. Um, what sort of communication do you not have? You don't have a landline phone, do you? It's gone. No, I don't have a landline phone. No, no. no yeah. So, so maybe we're using temporary forms of communication that future more intelligent people won't use. Uh, mm. So to, to summarise, according to the astrobiologists, about half of them reckon that there is intelligent life out there uh, somewhere. But there's so many stars. Write down the number six and then write down 23 zeros. That's how many planets roughly are in the universe. And they're not necessarily anywhere near us. The so universe you think is big. emails could not exist in the future? They might not. It'll be just such a primitive form of technology. Mm. And in fact, uh, if you read um, Alastair Reynolds, he talks about people having quantum computers buried in their brains where they can do calculations and do thinking very quickly but also communicate uh, with the internet and get all the information and communicate to each other directly via the quantum computers in their brains. Some people choose to go down this hyper-technical pathway. Others prefer to do things the old way where they um, grow their own yogurt and knit yogurt is that how you make yogurt? I don't know. But they prefer to do things the old way. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Bill, for your question at Science with Dr. Carl here on Triple J Mornings. And we're heading to the Gold Coast. Dr. Vanessa has a burning question about donating blood. Dr. Vanessa, how are you? Good. Good, thank you. Good morning, doctors. Dr. Vanessa, welcome. Um, I lived in the UK in 1984, and so I can't donate blood. And I was wondering if I ever will be able to, if they could test my blood or do research to find out how to get rid of the mad cow disease that could possibly be tainting it. So what had happened back then was that um, cows were being fed bits of cow and, in fact, cow brain. And it turns out there's a, an infectious agent. It's not a bacterium. It's not a virus. It is not a parasite. It's a prion, spelt prion, P-R-I-O-N, and it's a bit of protein that will, when you put this bit of slightly modified protein up against regular shaped protons, pr proteins with the same chemical formula, will make them change shape and it causes a disease called Kuru in New Guinea uh, or mad cow disease or, to be technical, um, spongiform bovine encephalitis. So spongiform means you're getting the shape of sponges, little bubbles in a sponge. Um, bovine cows, encephalitis, enkeph means brain, itis means inflammation. So they're getting this inflammation in the brains and it was happening to humans but normally with a very long time delay. So you might have it and not have any symptoms until 30 years. And so everybody who could possibly have eaten meat that was conta possibly contaminated was forbidden to donate blood in case they donated blood to somebody and 30 or 40 years down the line they could contaminate somebody. And is that still a situation, Vanessa, that you are not allowed in Australia to donate on the grounds that they haven't got a test for it yet? Yes, yeah, I was checking and, and it is. You can't donate blood 
if you were yeah living in that time period in the UK. So oh, all my kids, we all don't donate blood. They um, and look, this is a good thing to know, donate blood, um, and hopefully we'll come up with a diagnostic test. If we throw some money at it, like we did with the vaccine for COVID, we can come up with a test, and that means that more people like you with a good heart can donate your wonderful blood. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. If you love it, drop a review and maybe even a cheeky little five-star rating. Don't be a holdout. We'll catch you next week.